if a person is really honest about trying to learn something from this, try and say, hey, why did this happen to us? And how do we do it right? Then don't sell me all the stuff you already thought before. Ah, I told you, unity is important. I'm not saying we can't learn from this that unity is important. Of course it is. You're right. But let's be honest. You thought that before, right? So God didn't have to do this to teach you that. Or you want to tell me it's, I don't know, learning Torah. Or that we, that I always said that, the, you know, we need to, we need to destroy the Gazans or this. But I don't care what, whatever it is that you were thinking before, that you have now seen this action as encouraging your position, you have learned nothing. You basically said that this atrocity happened to teach us zip, zero. So I don't accept that. I think that if we are really honest about learning something from this or understanding why it happened and how it happened, we have to come out of our shell. We have to, we have to look inwardly to ourselves and say to ourselves, wait, what did I do wrong? What did I think wrong? What didn't I understand before? Not what, I, not what did I understand. What did I not understand before? that maybe now I'm thinking about again anew. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I've released three episodes of this podcast since October 7th. The first hosted Tali Rosenbaum, who talked about how we can cope with the current situation, given the tremendous trauma that so many of us are experiencing. I also spoke in that episode with David Lang, who discussed the world reaction to the Hamas massacre, as it seemed only a day after the atrocities took place. The second episode featured Matt Levitt, who analyzed the political and military situation in which Israel finds itself today, and talked about what we can expect militarily going forward. The third episode was my own monologue, where I offered some of my reflections on the experience that the Jewish people have been through since the war began. Today, I'm honored to host Ravioni Rosenzweig to talk about some of the halachic issues that pertain to this war, as well as various important non-halachic matters that we need to confront, including the right and wrong way to engage in self-reflection, what sorts of actions we can all be doing now in order to help the war effort and ourselves, the ways that we should face the fact that this seems like a time of hester panim, of God's hiding his face, and how we should face our fears in a healthy and Jewish way. That's all coming up in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. I also have a substack called Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, to which you can subscribe for free. The link is in the description of this podcast. This week, Tali Rosenbaum and I released a new episode of Intimate Judaism entitled Love in War, Strengthening Security and Connection Amidst Trauma and Threat. You can find that on IntimateJudaism.com or on your favorite podcast provider. I also want to take this opportunity to recommend an excellent podcast, which is hosted by my friend, Dr. Matthew Levitt, whom, as I said, I hosted on episode 178 of The Orthodox Conundrum. One of the biggest questions we all have in these uncertain days is what Hezbollah is really thinking and whether it intends to open a second front in the war against Israel. In order to get a real understanding of what Hezbollah is and how its leaders think, there is no better resource than Matthew Levitt. In his podcast, Breaking Hezbollah's Golden Rule, which just started its second season, Matt shines a bright light on Hezbollah's global terrorist and criminal activities that it tries to keep hidden from view. Lebanese Hezbollah goes to great lengths to publicize its overt social and political activities, 
and to conceal its covert terrorist, militant, and criminal pursuits. In the words of one operative, Hezbollah's golden rule is this, the less you know, the better. In this podcast, Matt sets out to break this rule by shining a bright spotlight on Hezbollah's global terrorist and criminal activities. Matt's been following Lebanese Hezbollah for almost three decades in and out of government. He's written books, given expert testimony, and literally mapped Hezbollah's worldwide illicit activities in an online interactive map and timeline. I highly recommend, especially now, that you add Breaking Hezbollah's Golden Rule to your listening diet. The link is in the description of this podcast. And finally, remember the JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Ravioni Rosenzweig is rabbi of the Netzach Menashe community in Beit Shemesh. He's also founder of Maglei Nefesh Center for Halacha, Community, and Mental Health. Ravioni Rosenzweig, thank you very much for joining me again on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast in these difficult times. Of course. Um, I would say I'm happy to be here, but I'm not happy with the circumstances. But of course, I think it's very, very important that you're doing this. Yes. I appreciate that. Ravioni, I'd like to start asking you some questions. There are various halachic questions that have come your way that you've posted about on Facebook. Much of what I'm about to ask, I really just looked at your Facebook page and took them down. I understand that obviously a Facebook post and a podcast isn't necessarily the best forum for halachic psak, but perhaps in terms of general guidelines, you can give some ideas of how we should relate to these ideas, if that's okay. So I'd like to start off with a question, which I already mentioned about a week and a half ago on a podcast I did with Tali Rosenbaum. I mentioned to you that I was going to quote you there, but I think it's important enough to ask you directly about it. Here's the question, and we're dealing with questions specifically related to the situation now in Gaza. If a husband or a wife is called up to the front, is called up to the army, and they're in Nida, they are not able to touch, therefore, according to Jewish law, but they want to embrace, they want to hug, what are they allowed to do and what should they not do? So if it's all right with you, I want to give a little bit of an introduction to this whole thing so that people understand a little bit what we're doing here. I don't need to tell uh, your listeners, I think, that uh, wartime is a different sort of situation. Um, and it's different in terms of the concerns, different in terms of the considerations, in terms of the feelings, the emotions, uh, and all those, of course, impact the halacha. But it's also different in another way, which is very, very important for me to emphasize, publicity. Usually with questions like this, we answer on a case by case. Usually with questions like this, we don't put things on Facebook or on a on just like a podcast and say, oh, do this, do that you know, et cetera, et cetera, as if we don't have to consider the specific uh, person in the specific situation. Um, of course, PSAC is usually very individualized. The difference here, and the reason that I also posted what I posted, which we will get into in a moment, is because that this is a question that many, many people are dealing with concurrently. In other words, it's not a unique situation. We have uh, over 350,000 reservists that are being called up you know, I think people said like 4% of the country is now, you know, in the army. It's just unparalleled to anything else that we've, that we usually see. So therefore, some questions uh, become so prevalent that everybody needs to hear the answer. And it's important for everybody to have the answer. And, and because of the unique circumstances of the, being wartime, uh, the answer is also is relatively the same for everybody, relatively. So I just want to put that out there because sometimes people say, how can you not, how can you pass in for everyone 
in one shot. You know, so you're right. Most times we can't. But in this situation, I think for a lot of people, we can. That said, that said, when, and I'm going to answer your question right now. Of course, people should apply any psak in an individualized way. So if it's not relevant to them, of course, they shouldn't uh, They shouldn't do it. If they don't need it, then they don't need it. You know, But if they do, then they do. Now, to the question itself that you asked, I think that we need to understand uh, the principle behind the answer. The principle behind the answer is that morale, the morale of the soldiers is tied to the morale of the home front, that the rear and the front lines are connected. They're connected in any war, but I think they're very much connected in Israel. Israel is a small country. In the terrorist attack that happened where over 1,300 people were killed, thousands wounded, and hundreds were taken captive, I don't think there was anyone anywhere in Israel that didn't know someone or wasn't connected in some way to what happened. And I think that that is a testament to the fact of what I'm saying, which is that it's very important to understand the connection between the rear and the front is pivotal. And therefore, in order to support people, okay, what they need to have is a high morale and they need to have focus, focus on what they're doing. In order to make sure that that happens, they have to make sure two things. Number one, that they can, so to speak, get things out of their head. They can get things out of the way and they can focus on the job ahead when they go into the army. And number two, they have to feel the support of the RF, what we call the, the rear, and know that the rear is taken care of and is fine. Now, I, I know this has already been taken a long time, but let me give you one more point, okay? So the Rambam, the Rambam writes that when a person goes to war, he has to put home and family out of his head. That's what the Rambam writes in Hilcham Malachim. He writes that a person needs to not think about home, not think about his kids, not to think about his wife, just to go and, and be in the war and do what he needs to do. The Rambam and the Torah, which also discusses to some extent, was talking, you know, uh, was talking about a, a situation where people didn't have phones. If you went to war, then you really did need to put everything out of your head. It's not like you could communicate. Ah, oh, you could send a letter, but in the, but if you're in a war in those days, you couldn't even do that. You know, so there was no way to really communicate with the rear. You have to put it out of your head. Today, we have electronic means of communication. People communicate with their loved ones all the time, all the time. You're in constant touch with what's going on. So in order to make to, to reach the same result that the Rama wants to reach, that the person is focused on the war, it's the opposite. The person needs to be able to say goodbye properly, needs to be able to sometimes make a call home and make sure everything's fine, you know, and then be able to put the phone down and now focus on the task at hand, you know. So in order to, so to speak, be focused in the way that the Rama wants, that's what we need to do. Coming back to, the, to your question. So what does that mean for us? What it means for us is that if a person is about to leave the house, right? That's what I was talking about in that post. Person's about to leave the house. The wife doesn't know when she's going to see him next. He doesn't know when he's going to be home next. So in order for him to be able to focus on what's going on and to feel the support of the rear, and if she's in Nida, right? So I said, yes, they could give one last hug goodbye so that she feels like she got some sort of closure, so to speak, before he left, so that he feels like he, you know, said goodbye properly. And now that he's leaving the house, he's going to the task at hand, and he's going to do it, and he's going to do it properly. And he won't worry that his wife isn't fine, or that she misses him, or whatever it is right now, because even if she does, and of course he misses her, but now he has the strength, he has the support, and he has the ability, the high morale, 
to go and do what he needs to do. And for the higher morale of the soldier, that could be even pikuach nefesh, could be even life-threatening sometimes. One last technical halachic point, and then I'm, I'm done. The technical halachic point here is also that the hog was given, we always, always say, through clothing. So, of course, you might say, oh, okay, all hogs are given through clothing, usually. Um, and that's true, but that's a halachic point. In other words, uh, if there's no skin-on-skin touch, you know, that also it alleviates the prohibition uh, significantly. Um, and so, to my mind, such a leniency is not a Torah prohibition even, you know, and if we allow much, much more than that, you know, to support our soldiers. Uh, so, Kalva Homer, how much more so we would allow such a thing? Okay, thank you for that answer. One detail on that answer I'd like to know, does this apply only to combat soldiers or does it also apply to anybody called up to the army, let's say somebody's in intelligence or is doing a non-combat role? Right. It's a very good question. It definitely applies to combat soldiers. Does it apply also to people in Modi'in and in those sorts of... Uh, so I think here it's it's more it's more finicky. It's not as clear, uh, you know, in my mind. That I would say the same thing because it depends on how often the person gets out and how much people are are worried about them. But it could be, yes, it could be. In other words, if a person, because once again, what's the what's the rationale? The rationale was that the person needs to be focused. So if they go and they're in a very um, sensitive job, even if it is an intelligence, but they're in a very sensitive job, and therefore they will be out of the house for 10, 12, 14 days, whatever it is before they can go home, you know, and they're worried about their wives or they're worried about what's going on. You know, and they also need the chizuk. So even in that situation, may very well be that that's needed. I will say, I will say, just one last thing, I will say that some people, you know, have a different feeling about this. And I did get that feedback from individuals. And I and I want to also put it out here on the pad, podcast. Some people got chizuk from keeping the halacha in its simple way. In other words, that, uh, you know, we're not going to hug and we're not going to do that you know, et cetera. And they felt like, okay, by 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 keeping the simple letter of the law, by uh, doing what we always do, by maintaining that routine, you know, that's what's going to guard us. That's what's going to give us chizok, you know, by, by, by adhering to that. But I don't think that anybody who gave the hug, you know, did anything wrong. I don't think that anyone, I don't think that that's not halacha. I think they're both halacha, you know, and then that's, that's uh, fine. Whatever gives a person uh, most chizok, I think is what they should be doing at a time like this. I remember you mentioned in your post, quoting somebody who said, Allah authority, who discussed the difference between a romantic hug versus almost what I might call a familial hug, an expression of love without sexual content per se. I know that was part of the tshuva as well, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that is also, uh, it's, it's a chiluk that is not often discussed, and for good reason, because usually we don't use it. But uh, sometimes, yes, uh, there are definitely postkim who discuss the difference between shall we say, affectionate touch and supportive touch. And these things can be blurred. I'm not saying that they cannot be blurred. And therefore, people are worried, oh, how could you say that? Because aren't you afraid that these two things will be blurred? I think that a hug that is given before the husband right leaves the house, he's already in his clothing, he's already he's ready to go. You know, I don't think that you can blur that. I don't think that that's something that, oh, it'll lead to whatever it is, you know, et cetera. I don't think that that's true. And I think that people also understand the difference between a on wartime sucks. So I'm not worried about the slippery slope and people, you know, mistaking one thing for another. But yes, I do think that once again, that distinction is true. Let me let me put that in context. Also, once again, I always say it's very interesting, and this is for a different time, maybe to discuss more at length. But the one relative that you that is also family, but also a romantic uh, connection is your wife. In other words, you have family and you have family relationships, and then you have all the other women of the world, you know, etc. With family. 
you have that supportive connection and many people will hug their sisters, uh, obviously mothers, um, you know, grandmothers, cousins even, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And usually there's nothing romantic about that. It's totally just family. And any other woman, right, there's always that the sexual tension and that sort of feeling and that worry and understandable. With your wife, it's both. It's both. It's the only person in the world that there's a little bit of both, where there's also a certain sexual tension, sure, but there's also a family connection and relationship. And in certain situations, your wife, I know it's probably funny to say it this way, but in certain situations, your wife is family. And in certain situations, your wife is a sexual partner. You know, and I think that in times like this, when a person's about to leave for war, your wife is family. You know what I'm saying? And, and she should be treated that way. You know, we don't, we, we shouldn't quibble, uh, I think, about, uh, you know, that one fleeting moment of giving a hug, um, you know, to support the person, support both the home front and and the, the person going to the front lines or even to his job, you know, where he might be unavailable for the next few days, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that there's a reason to quibble about that. Okay. Let's move on to a different issue. This is an issue I heard you discuss also on the Merkaz Tzedek Lenashim, the Center for Women's Justice podcast. And you composed or were involved in composing something which is, I believe, called the Star Lebenyat Aginut, some sort of document which helps prevent the problem of Agunot and has particular relationship to wartime as well as any time the husband becomes incapacitated. Could you explain what that is and perhaps also talk about how it's different from the classic get al a conditional get, which was given classically and famously in the time of David HaMelech, etc.? What is this and how is it used? Right. Uh, it's a very long discussion, so we're going to try to make it as succinct as possible, uh, just to give the bare bones here. And whatever, whatever else you decide to ask about is fine, but uh, just the bare bones. A get al is exactly what it sounds like. It's a get that's conditional. So in other words, the person goes to war. Uh, he gives a get before that. So if he doesn't come back, there is a get. It's a very interesting uh, concept because the question is, what, why would someone do that? In other words, what does it matter to the wife if she's a widow or she's a divorcee? Anyway, she's free. Yeah. But nevertheless, the get al it's supposed to achieve certain things for the woman in terms of uh, yibum, in terms of chalitza, things like that. I'm not going to go into it. Either way, that was true, that the Gemara does discuss uh, a conditional get. What has arisen in our time more and more is not the question of someone who has died, but someone who is missing in action, what we call MIA. So someone who's missing in action, that's really where the problem is. Because once again, if he died, so in a sense, you could say, why do we need a get all tonight? Why do we need a conditional get? He's She's a widow. You know, it's terrible, but what does it matter? She's a widow or she's divorced. But if someone is uh, missing in action, and uh, the and we don't know what happened to him, and we assume that he's dead. We assume it. We don't know for sure, right? There, the conditional get must might be uh, very useful. But all that, all that is not what I'm talking about. All that is not the star bitachon. The star bitachon, which I was asked to put together many years ago, but not connected, not in connection to a war, had to do with a situation where the husband is incapacitated, either mentally or physically. So that he cannot give a get. Now he cannot, he can no longer give it. And the idea here, it's a, what's called a harsha'a. In other words, he's giving permission to write a get on his behalf in that situation. Now, I, I will say the, sim, the simple understanding of the halacha is that that's not possible. That a, a husband giving a get must be um, fully cognizant and capable, not only when he asks to write the get, but also when the get is actually given. So the simple reading of the halacha, both in the Gemara 
and in the Shulchan Aruch, is that such a get given when the husband is not doesn't have the the capacity mentally to do that would not work. Nevertheless, uh, I worked hard to understand the reasons behind that uh, prohibition and tried to unearth, I would say, the uh, the deepest strata that that uh, you know come behind that. Um, and in a very long response that I wrote, a response that I wrote, I I came to the conclusion that in a tight spot, in a situation, you know, like this, it would be possible. Yeah. So that therefore, b- bottom line, so that if I, if someone signs this document in front of witnesses and it does so before he goes to battle, if he comes back and he is either in a coma or is incapacitated in some other way, so that he cannot give the get, the statement that he gave before to give a get on his behalf could possibly be used. Is there a reason why a get al would not work in this particular situation? Is there a reason why you would not want people to do that in the case, for example, where someone is an MIA, where they gave a get in case chas a person is taken captive, and after a certain amount of time, there's no knowledge if he's living or dead, and the woman is stuck as an aguna in the classic sense of aguna. Right. Um, is there a reason why that should not be used? Well, a get al is is complicated in, in a few ways. Um, it requires not witnesses, but a baitin, and it requires writing a get which not many people know how to do, um, you know, and certainly not a get out tonight. So this is a, this is kind of like, it's, it's more nuanced territory and you would need a, a so fair kitten, you know, to actually be doing it. In other words, you can't just like print out a piece of paper and sign in front of some witnesses. So it's technically more complicated. Besides that, there, there were always, there's, there's a very significant discussion about whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing in a sense that it might hurt morale uh, in the army. So there is that discussion that rabbis are having, uh, and there are opinions like this, opinions like that. I understand that many soldiers write goodbye letters, so I'm not sure why that's okay, uh, but writing a get al hurts morale, but uh, nevertheless, okay. You know, it's it's definitely a, a consideration that you could put forth. Other people say, and I spoke to uh, Raviol Binun, you know about this uh, just lately, and he also wrote an article in Truman about uh, about a conditional get. You know that he basically says, you know, like it's not no different than you know taking out an insurance policy, you know, like a life insurance policy. Like what's uh, okay? So you take out the as long as it's uh, normalized, you know, there shouldn't be any issue or any reason why it should hurt morale. But uh, yes, that 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 is a major concern for a lot of people dealing with this issue. I mean, frankly, what I have heard about a gal tonight, in my own mind, obviously, chas v'shalom, anyone should need such a thing. But I wonder if part of the difference is if somebody dies, chas v'shalom, at the front, the woman might remarry. But it's a very different feeling to say, I'll be alive, but you're going to be divorced and marry somebody else. That might be a more difficult way of dealing with morale there. That's my own thought about that. Right. And and look, I think that, I think that I'll say it this way. I think that someone who, uh, a woman who uh, gets remarried after a get al in terms of Nedarim, in terms of someone who's missing, I think she probably believes he's dead. In other words, when we say missing, you know, I think what we're saying is you probably think he's dead. You just can't prove it. You know, so we're going to use the get al to get you out of this situation, you know, rather than waiting for confirmation, which might never come, you know, that the individual has indeed perished. So you're right. But I don't think most people would, would kind of like say, oh, well, he's alive somewhere and I'm going to use the get al I think that's that's a more rare occurrence, probably. I was really speaking from the perspective of the soldier, the man at the front himself. Why oh. it might hurt his morale. Right, right, right. Just right, to right, think, right. wow. Right. Right. 
Yes. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Lo Elena. I'd like to move on to a different question about phones on Shabbat. We've already had, as we're recording this, one Shabbat since we all heard about the terrible events of Simchat Torah. What should people do? And I realize that's a very broad question. There are people who have family who are in the army. There are people who are not necessarily going to contact anybody, but concerned and can't have Onik Shabbat unless they leave on a computer screen with the news feed just automatically continuing. What do you suggest that people do when it comes to electronics on Shabbat during wartime? Once again, I think that we need to understand the world that we live in. So, you know, we are connected to electronics. We depend on electronics, you know, for our sanity, for our day-to-day, for our routine. You know, it's very, very important to us to be connected and to stay connected. Uh, With all that said, we all know that Shabbos is a respite from all that and a welcome respite. You know, like we we want that. We need that. You know, it's very, very important to us to have that Onik Shabbos, that Menuchat Shabbat, you know, that rest on Shabbat. You know, it's it's all it's all very, very important. But can a person have Onik Shabbos, you know, when their family is at war, when uh, members of their family are on the front lines or doing this or that or the other? That That's the question, right? So therefore, I'm not so sure that we gain that Onik Shabbos by disconnecting necessarily. It could be it's the opposite, that by disconnecting, we are infringing upon the Onik Shabbos of the person. Therefore, what we really need to do is try to find some sort of a balance between these two considerations. We want people to feel, you know, good and safe and whatever it is, you know, but we also want them to be able to benefit from Shabbat and enjoy Shabbat, you know, and not to be, uh, not for Shabbat to become chol, not for them to be as connected as they are during the week. And I've dealt with this, you know, uh, with mental health issues in the past before the war, you know, which you've interviewed me about, you know, in terms of my work on the mental health world, right? People with anxiety, people with depression, individuals with different uh, concerns, right? What they can do, what they cannot do. And I also try to strike a balance with them, you know, when it comes to their observation of Shabbat. And it's the same over here. It's the same over here. We need to find a balanced response, right? So let's, let's take a few examples in order to see how the principle, you know, is used. For example, right, to obviously to leave the, the app on your phone, the Pikuda Oref or Teva Adom, the app that lets you know if there's a rocket attack, you know, in your area, you know, obviously that's fine. Uh, everyone will say that's fine. You don't have to touch your phone if you do anything, you know, obviously that's okay. And to uh, have a radio on, what's called the Gal Shaket, like the silent, uh, you know, where it just, uh, just comes on when you need it you know, to tell you what's going on. Obviously, that's not only okay, it's necessary, you know, and all that doesn't really require, you know, much of a psaac. So, you know, I think that's that's obvious to most people, uh, and that's in order to safeguard, you know, them and what's going on. Same for someone who guards the shul, right? I mean, people, some people go, go to, some people in every shul, you know, you have people with guns, you know, guarding, with weapons guarding the shul every Shabbos, you know, and uh, that's, everyone says that that's fine. So to take a phone to shul, you know, would be a problem. I don't think that if, you know, if you can carry a weapon, you know, because you need to make sure that you're safe, you can obviously carry a phone to show. And you don't, not everybody needs to carry a phone. One person, you know, who's in charge can carry a phone, make sure that he has it on, that he can hear the, once again, whatever alarms are going off, that he's updated, you know, et cetera. I think that that's obviously uh, important, significant, uh, and can be done. The, the trickier things, you know, come when a person wants to know whether they can be updated by a family member on Shabbat, uh, whether they can answer a call from a family member on Shabbat, uh, things of that sort. And here, it will depend on uh, what's going on a little bit. But generally, 
Uh, once again, we spoke before about the connection between the front and the rear and the chizuk, the, the strength that we need, you know, to uh, uh, gain from each other. If you have a relative who's on the front lines, you know, and whenever they go in for uh, for an operation, their phones are taken away from them and, you know, they can't be in contact. And many times they can't be in contact. They get a small amount of time where they can, you know, be in touch and let you know what's going on. You know, and if they've been silent for three, four or five days and then they call you on Shabbat, then, you know, because that's the only time that they have, then yes, absolutely. I would say that you can answer the phone and you can listen and you can talk to the to the individual, you can listen to what's going on, you can offer them chizuk, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These are people who are at war. I don't I, I sometimes don't think that we we appreciate what that means. It is a taxing, it is a complicated, it is a stressful thing to be. When you are in a place where you know you feel like lives depend on you and you need to be on. On. You can't just like, you know, start to like, you know, oh, not like, you know, in, in regular in regular peacetime or whatever we call peacetime here, you know, where you're sitting in a, in a shmirai, in a mutzav, you're sitting in some guard and you're guarding. I've done this in the army. You know, you sit in some place for 10, 12 hours, 10 of those hours, you're not doing anything. You know, it's a, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about situations where these people have to be on all the time. It is taxing. It is stressful. It is tiring, you know, et cetera. When they get a moment to call and to get some normalcy. You know, so they can reach out and they can get that chizuk from the family. But we have to understand that that goes a long way to their battle readiness. You know, we have to make that connection, we have to understand and make that connection. It's about battle readiness. Yes, it is. You know, our soldiers are in a situation which is not, which is abnormal, and they need that connection. If they have that connection, then they will be able to function. And if they have that strength, they'll be able to function. If not, then their functionality and their battle readiness will go down. So I don't think that we need to, uh, you know, once again, to split hairs on this issue. If you have a child or a husband or a relative or someone, you know, who is, you know, serving the country, you know, certainly in a forward area, and they don't get a lot of time to call you, you know, and then when they call that has to be on Shabbat, then I would say answer it, yes. Okay, thank you very much for that. Just one more halakhic question. I'm sure there are many more we could discuss, but one more I saw that's quite interesting. I know that there is a movement, my own kids have been involved in this too, to bake cookies and cakes and provide other food for soldiers at the front. If you are a religious soldier at the front and someone sends you food, whatever kind of food it might be, I'm sort of leaving that open right now, and you're a religious soldier, you don't know who baked this for you. The person might be a religious Jew, the person might not be. To what degree can you trust the kashrut of this particular food, what should a soldier do in that situation? Right. So first of all, this would be a, a great time to just acknowledge the amazing chesed, you know, that uh, that our nation uh, does with each other. And we've all heard the stories, you know, of people even koshering their kitchens, koshering their restaurants just in order to be able to send, uh, you know, soldiers food without them having to worry about the kashrut status. And it, it's also... It's also amazing. You know, we always say how unfortunate it is that we have to wait for a tragedy to happen, you know, for something like this to, to occur. But it's just, it's very, very amazing that uh, that we are able to uh, to come together like this, you know, even if it takes such a tragedy, but it is it is so amazing. With all that said, sometimes, yes, the soldiers will get food that they don't know where it was baked, what it was, what was done with it. It's hard to, to to give a rule about all, all but all of that, but I would say like this. Most of the food, we, we live in a in an, in a very unique time. Even Chazal, you know, in the Gemara and the Mishnah did not live in such a situation. You know, 
because of hashgachas, because of the kashrus organizations and the way that they work in Israel, most items that you buy in a store are kosher. Meaning you walk into a supermarket, I mean, I don't know how many people check, you know, hechshers on every single item that they buy. I think a lot of people just pick off the shelf, you know, and they just assume there's a hechsher there. They don't, they don't even, they don't even check, you know, because there is, because there is, because it's true. You know, like it's, I mean, if you go into just a normal supermarket, that's what happens, right? So therefore, we are talking about a situation where most of the products that are being used to make the food are kosher. And what's left? What's left is that the kitchen might not be kosher, which is true. Yeah. So if a person, you know, goes to the store, he says, I want to bake cookies. I want to make this. I want to make that. He's probably buying uh, material that is kosher. And then he's making it in a non-kosher oven, in a non-kosher microwave, in, a non in non-kosher pots, using non-kosher utensils, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. All those things are probably trafe. You know, there's there's very little doubt. But with all that said, like I said, the, the actual raw materials are kosher. So because of that, it definitely lessens the problem that we have in benefiting from the food. Now, of course, once again, it will depend a little bit what the food is. And here, you know, we'll start going into details and I'm not sure that it's worthwhile for your listeners, you know, but I would say nine times out of 10, okay? If you get something, if you get food um, and it's relatively simple, okay, shall we say? that you can rely on it, that it's fine. Okay, thank you. Ravioni, I'd like to switch gears a little bit now for the second part of our discussion today and talk about some hashkafic issues. Perhaps you mentioned chizuk before to give people encouragement during what's obviously a difficult time for all Jews across the world. Let's open up by talking about something that people have mentioned in a way that we should relate to it. I'm talking about the Rambam, who says that when misfortunes happen to Am Yisrael, we should all investigate our deeds to figure out what have we been doing wrong? What is the thing that we can do to correct ourselves? There are a lot of ways to relate to this Rambam. There are a lot of ways to relate to this obviously Jewish idea. It's not just the Rambam. But how would you suggest in a time like this that people think about what can we do better in a way that won't also cause feelings of too much guilt in a way which is negative? Yeah, yeah. I think this is a very important point. I was actually going to post about this today. Uh, but uh, I think it's a very, very important point. And I want to explain why I think it's so important. It is natural for us as human beings to search for meaning, and that's fine. You know, for us to try and look at a situation and say, you know, what is the meaning of this? Why did this happen? Why did this occur? And to try and learn something from it. However, very few people lack the honesty, the personal honesty and integrity to really do that. And I'll explain what I mean by that, okay? Because many people consider themselves honest and and uh, good people and they are and they are and they really mean to do the right thing but here's the problem i'll say it in one line and then i'll explain what i mean if all you see when something like this happens is what you already think then you haven't learned anything so chazal were unbelievably good at this it's unbelievable like the 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 kind of introspection that Chazal put themselves through is actually inspiring to see. So we always say, Yerushalayim was destroyed because of Kamtza or Kamtza. It's such an amazing, I, I'm in awe from the statement. In other words, not to say, hey, who killed, who killed, who, who destroyed Jerusalem? The Romans. Why, why, did, why was Jerusalem destroyed? Because the Romans, because they're evil, because they're bad, because 
you know, that are like like uh, the, the Palestinians blame us for all the wrongs that happened to them. You know, it's always easy to blame the other person to say, well, who do, who's doing the blockade? Who's uh, who's not, uh, you know, uh, giving us uh, water and electricity? Who's uh, bombing our, you know, okay, fine. Because I also could have said, why, why did Jerusalem, the Romans, they're, they're bad people. What do you want? They came, they conquered our land, and they destroyed our temple. So what, what's, what else is there to say? No, no. The rabbis invoke some weird story, yeah, some like out-of-the-way event. And really, when you look at the story, they're blaming themselves. The story is about how the rabbis did not stand up and not, did not protest when someone was thrown out of a meal, you know, and they didn't come and say, look, that's wrong. The rabbis looked inwardly. They didn't, they didn't use the easy way out to say, ah, I know what's wrong here. It's, it's what we always thought. You know, those non-Jews, they just hate us. It's anti-Semitism, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No, the rabbi said, it's us. It's us. We did it. We did it. Our fault. We, they actually tried to learn something. From Khurbani Rushalayim, which I tried to learn something from the destruction. The Gemara in Yoma Daftet, which is the source for the famous line about Sinat Chinam, about you know how there's hatred, and that's the reason for the temple being destroyed. People don't always remember what the people always say Sinat Chinam is Kamsa or Kamsa, which it isn't. Nothing to do with that. The the Sinat Chinam, that line, is actually from Daf, from Yoma Daftet. What's the what's the story over there? In the first uh, destruction of the temple. The Nevi'im write what the reason was. So it's Gilu Yarayot, Shfichot Amim, and Avodah Zarah. It's the three big sins, right? It's idol worship, it's murder, and it's incest. Okay, so then we know, oh, that makes sense, right? So what was the problem in the second temple? The problem in the second temple was that the rabbis were around for that. So they didn't have to rely on the Nevi'im. They saw what was going on, and they knew that none of that was going on. They knew there was no Avodah Zarah, there was no Shfichot Amim, and there was no Gilu Yarayot. So they, they said, okay, we know why the first temple was destroyed, but we're looking at the second temple and we're asking ourselves, why? Why? There was none of that stuff. And once again, an amazing answer. They looked inwardly. They looked into themselves and they said, you know what? It was Sinat Chinam. Now, put aside like why that's so bad and how they came to that and all that. I'm putting that aside. But it is an amazing act of, of introspection, of self-awareness, and a real desire, a real desire to learn something new from what happened. Not to, not to just, just like rely on the old tropes. So, so when I when I see right something like this, 1,300 people killed, thousands wounded, hundreds, you know, abducted into the into the Gaza Strip, right? If a person is really honest about trying to learn something from this, try and say, hey, why did this happen to us and how do we do it right? then don't sell me all the stuff you already thought before. Ah, I told you, unity is important. I'm not saying we can't learn from this that unity is important. Of course it is. You're right. But let's be honest, you thought that before, right? So God didn't have to do this to teach you that. Because already before you were saying, well, you know, unity is really important, the cohesiveness of the, the community, you know, et cetera. You know, or you want to tell me it's, I don't know, learning Torah. Or that we, that I always said that, the, you know, we need to, we need to destroy the Gazans or this. I don't care what, whatever it is that you were thinking before, that you have now seen this action as encouraging your position. You have learned nothing. You have learned nothing. That's what happened here. You just learned nothing. You basically said that this atrocity happened to teach us zip, zero. So I don't accept that. 
I think that if we are really honest about learning something from this or understanding why it happened and how it happened, we have to come out of our shell. We have to, we have to look in inwardly to ourselves and say to ourselves, wait, what did I do wrong? What did I think wrong? What didn't I understand before? Not what, I, what, not what did I understand. What did I not understand before that maybe now I'm thinking about again anew and I'm, I'm trying to understand that. That takes time. It's not going to take a moment. People have to really think about it. And I don't think that it will be debilitating because I don't think that people will say, oh, I did because, you know, oh, because it's uh, something wrong with me. You know, it's not something wrong with you specifically. It's just something you didn't realize. You didn't think about. It's not about a sin that you did that you committed. It's not going to be like I didn't learn enough Torah, you know, or I didn't kiss the mezuzah enough times. It's going to be something else. It's going to be something about reality that you can now look at and you can say, you know what? Here is something that I have I've always had a blind spot, you know, and here's what I can do about it. And hopefully it drives people to action. It drives people to pr productivity. It drives people to doing, you know, that's where, that's where we should go with this. But anybody who just stays put, and unfortunately I see many people just staying put and seeing this war as simply uh, verifying what they always do to be true, you know? So to them, I say, you know, it's better if you don't learn anything from this war then, because you know, don't don't try to tell me there's a meaning to it. Because if the meaning of the war is something you already knew, I don't know why Hashem had to do all that stuff, you know, in order to tell you something you already knew. Okay, thank you. That was really an important and inspiring idea. Thank you, Raviani. I'm going to think about that a lot now. You said it has to drive us towards action. So perhaps even without necessarily deciding what the reason is, which is something that every individual has to decide for him or herself, can you suggest some specific actions that you would suggest that people do, whether they're in Israel or if they're in Chutzlaretz, specific types of actions that will be helpful both for Am Yisrael as a whole and also for them on their own individual level to feel that they're really being productive and helpful. Because those of us who are fighting, they're our heroes right now. Many of us who are not fighting feel the need to do something. What is that something in your opinion? Right, right. So there's, there's a few somethings, right? So, you know, there are some who are, you know, who immediately they... They jump at the first initiative that is uh, put, you know, in front of them to help out in, you know, collecting money, you know, sending out food, this or that or the other, you know, et cetera. I don't know about you, uh, Rabbi Khan, but uh, at least with me, whenever I get those WhatsApp messages, so <laughs> by the time I click on it or try to sign up, it's already full. And right. it's already, it's already, I don't know how that is, but I, I must get these things. It's like, beautiful, in fact, but yes. Yeah. I, 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 it doesn't matter how much I try. It's always like we have too much already. We have too much already. You know, so somehow I, I probably get these messages like 400 or 500 hand, you know, later on after everybody's, you know, uh, done it already. So it is what it is. But yeah, Baruch Hashem, there's a lot of people who jump at those opportunities, who just show up, you know, who volunteer, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that is beautiful. But but many people, two things, either that's not enough for them, you know, I mean, they, they do that and fine, you know, so they made a cake, they sent some food, but then again... That's one hour of their day. Then there's 23 hours where they're wondering what they can do, you know, and for others, they're less doers. That's not their thing, you know, and or it's hard for them or they have kids or they have, you know, there's a lot of things to me. And I, I wrote about this a post that went quite viral. I'm sure you saw it. To me, what felt right uh, was once again to tell people that I think in a way, just being themselves is already doing something. And I know that sounds a bit of a cop out, so I will I will explain what I what I mean by that. People say, 
every email you send, every message you send, you know, et cetera, it means something, which is true. You know, that's definitely correct. But I want to cast it in a certain light so we understand, you know, what that is. War is a horrible thing. War is, is just a horrible thing. And no matter how justified the war is, no matter what it is that you think you're fighting for, no matter how moral it is, we have to understand that the person who goes out to war is indelibly scarred, you know, because he goes and he kills people, you know, and killing people is not an easy thing on the soul. Even when you kill terrorists, you know, you're you're in a in a tough situation, you're in a stressed situation, you know, that's that's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave a mark on a person to take a life. Uh, even when they do it justly and correctly, and certainly when there's collateral damage and other things, you know, it could definitely weigh on the person. And how much more so if you lose friends, you know, and uh, in, in the war, you know, it's this is it's an abnormal reality for a person. They are not where they know where they're not where they are usually. They don't have their regular routine. We are creatures of routine. We are we are we we do we need that in order for us to be comfortable to be to feel safe to feel grounded to have an anchor and when we're outside of our routine then anything can happen and the rabbis knew this the torah knew this right the the famous uh, uh parsha in, at the beginning of kitetze about eshet yefat tor about taking a non-jew um you know in the war and sleeping with her you know etc and take, bring her into your home i mean how could how could anything like that happen how could the torah sanction that and the rabbis quite i would say bravely you know, right? You shouldn't take that for granted. It's not a simple thing for the rabbis to say about the words of the Torah that they are dievet. You know, to say this thing that the Torah writes, it doesn't really want to write it. It doesn't really want the situation to happen. Says who? You know, the Torah says this is what a person should do. How do we know that it's not good? Yeah. But the rabbis here are using what they know from other places and what they understand. You know, they're saying it's yetzerhar. A person, I mean, certainly in those days, right? You take a farmer. You know, off his off his field. You put a sword, you know, in his hand, and you you push him towards the the front lines. He's away from home for weeks, months, maybe, in a foreign land, in a place that he doesn't know, that he doesn't recognize, with people he doesn't know, you know, and they're fighting for who knows how long, and doesn't know if he'll see home. It's an abnormal situation. So yes, situation is a bit different today. Connections are better. People, okay, but that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah, we we couldn't even imagine a situation of Eshet Yifatoar today because of that, because that things are more organized, things are more ordered. And once again, you have a connection with your wife and your kids and your family. But could I imagine it in a scenario where a person is away from home for months in a land that he doesn't know, fighting for some cause, you know, et cetera, and not knowing when, whether he'll die tomorrow or not? Yes, of course I can imagine that. You know, the Torah was aware that when a person finds himself in abnormal scenario, that they will do abnormal things and that they will come out of it a different person than they went in. And so I wrote in, the, in my post, and I say here also, you know, the best thing that we can do for our soldiers is to throw them that lifeline. It's not just, oh, send them an email because it supports them. It does support them. It also reminds them that their background is us, that we're here for them, that we're waiting for them to return. That that weird life that they're living right now, it won't last forever. And that there's a normal end to this story that's waiting for them back home that they have to return to. And when a person has that sense of normalcy, that anchor, 
that feeling that they belong to, 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 to their home, that gives them the motivation to do what they need to do. That gives them the sanity to get through the day. That's a lot. That's a lot for a soldier. It's not a small thing. It's a lot for a soldier to have that connection and that relationship. So when I say to people, yeah, just, you know, like uh, people say, what, what do they say here in America? They write your senator. Yeah. So, you know, like you write your uh, write your family member, talk to your kids, talk to your wife. You know, so the wife and the kids in that scenario are doing something immeasurable. They are retaining sanity and the normalcy, you know, of our soldiers so that they come back. They're not as scarred as they would be otherwise. That's a big thing. I want to ask probably an unanswerable question, but I'm going to present it anyway, and I'm curious how you would respond to this, because I think a lot of people are experiencing a type of hesterpanim, the hiding of God's face, in a way that we who live in the 21st century have not had to experience. A lot of people are pointing out that Simchat Torah was the day when more Jews were slaughtered than any day in 78 years since the end of the Holocaust. Having that sudden feeling of an eclipse of the normal light that we've been experiencing from God— that feeling of God's presence suddenly being vacated almost. A lot of people, I think, are having a hard time dealing with that on a theological level. And I'd like to know, Ravioni, what you would tell them. First of all, it's an, it's an unanswerable question. You know, so I think we all know that. And I want to put that out there right from the beginning, you know, because it's important for me that people not misconstrue what I will say afterwards as an attempt to explain why something is occurring. You know, Rav Soloveitchik taught us uh, and called the effect that we do not ask why. You know, we can ask what, meaning what does Hashem want from us. Uh, we do not ask. We do not ask why because we cannot answer why. And this is a very, very important point in and of itself. So I'll, you know, I'll just uh, point out it's the it's the difference between asking, between saying that the Holocaust happened so that the state of Israel could be born, something which I am against saying, because I think that if Hashem had wanted the state of Israel to be born, He had many ways to make it happen. He did not have to kill 6 million Jews for that to occur. I disagree with a statement. But I think that it's okay to say, once the Holocaust has happened, what do I learn from that? Not why did it happen, but do I learn from that that the Jews need a state of their own? Yes. I can definitely learn that from the Holocaust. It's certainly a lesson I can learn. It doesn't explain why the Holocaust happened, but it certainly points in that direction. So those that's a difference that you know we need to, first of all, say. With all that said, so if that's true, I'm asking the what question, what does this mean to me? And here I also posted about this at some point. You know, I, I first saw this in a short video from Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, that's all. Um, but afterwards, I it was told to me that uh, my Rebbe, or Rabinovich, that's all, actually said it first. And it's in his book, Misilot Bilvavam. I forget what the translation is in, in English. The, the idea that they put forth is actually, I think, a very powerful one, certainly for me. And it's, and it's the following idea. There are evil things that happen in this world, and we do not understand why they occur. They seem unimaginable to us. And it could be, and certainly we believe on a theological level, that from God's perspective, there is a reason. And that's all very nice, you know. But if that's true, why didn't God give us his perspective? Why aren't we able to see why these things occurred? And the two esteemed rabbis who I mentioned before say, the reason that Hashem decided to hide these things, this rationale from us, is because Hashem did not want us to understand the rationale. Because if we understood the rationale, then we would accept the evil that comes with it. 
And Hashem never wanted us to accept the evil. He wants us to fight the evil. Meaning the world is built in a certain in a way that we don't understand why bad things happen, so that we will contest those bad things, so that we will protest those bad things, so that we will fight against those bad things. That's the reason that Hashem has hidden his reasons from us. We're not supposed to understand. We're supposed to make this world a better place. So I don't know why Hashem did these things. But when I see something that I don't understand, I get the message. The message is, you're not supposed to understand this. You're supposed to get rid of it. You're supposed to fight it. You're supposed to eradicate it. Because if you could understand it, then maybe you wouldn't do that. But that's not what I want from you. What I want from you is to fight. If I can say so, Ravioni, that reminds me of my favorite statement, allegedly by the Kuska Rebbe, at least I heard it in his name, that someone once went to the Kuska Rebbe and said, Rebbe, I don't understand. Why did God make such an ugly world? And the Kuska said to him, really? You think you could do a better job? The person thought and said, I think I could. The Kuska looked right at him and said, in that case, what are you waiting for? And I think that really is a very, very important concept. 100%. I only have time for one more question, even though I have so many more that I want to ask you. But one final question for you, again, on a hushkafic practical level, if we can put those two together, because a lot of people today are upset, they're grieving, they're very scared about soldiers down at the front line, the future of Israel, what's going to happen to the whole world. This is a very, very serious situation that we're dealing with right now. And I'm hoping that you could provide some words of chizuk, of how to confront our fears, confront the concern that we're all feeling right now in a way that will be healthy and Jewish? What would you tell people as words of Chizuk? What I would say is that I think that what we need uh, to understand is maybe uh, uh, two things, okay? The first thing is uh, we have to have faith, okay? Maybe that's a, a very uh, kind of like bland statement, you know, because everyone says we have to have faith. But I mean I mean that in a in a serious way. In other words, when things are unclear, that's when faith is most helpful because we don't have anything to rely on. We don't have anything that we can put our, again, nothing to lean on. There's nothing that we can say, oh, for sure it's going to be this way, for sure it's going to be that way. For generations and generations and generations, Jews did just that. They lived in other countries where they could have been expelled, they could have been pushed out, they could have been murdered at any moment, you know, and their anchor was almost non-existent in many times. So therefore, what they did was they put their faith in Hashem. And, and here also, faith, first of all, is very, very important to truly believe that we will get through this, that Hashem will take care of us, um, that we'll be able to move forward. That, that's important. But, but beyond that, okay, there is something new today that we have that we didn't have, you know, back in the day. And that is we have an army. We have the ability to strike back. We have the ability to create our own destiny. And that is very, very significant. You know, I don't wanna, I don't want it to be, I don't want to be misconstrued and people to think that I'm knocking, that I'm like uh, you know, being dismissive of uh, previous generations. So please don't take it that way. But in previous generations, if there was a calamity that occurred to us, we moved on. That's all we could do. You know, we moved on to a different city or a different town or a different country. We wrote a kina. We wrote like, you know, lamentation about it or whatever it is. You know, and we remembered that once upon a time, someone did something to us. You know, they burned our gemaras or they killed our, you know, they killed whole cities or whatever it is. And that's what we could do. That's all that we could do. 
it was the best in that in that circumstance. No one ever made to pay for those crimes, right? So uh, the, whoever perpetrated the crusade, the crusades, they you know, and they didn't have to pay for that. Whoever perpetrated the Inquisition didn't have to pay for that. Those individuals were never taken to task, never. So that's what we could do as a people, but it's not like that anymore. What I would say to people is, Hizik, is understand that today, our fate is in our own hands. Hashem has created for us a miraculous reality. And yes, we should have faith in Hashem. But people write to me, you know, uh, you know, uh, we pray to Hashem that he should take revenge. I, I don't agree with that. I think that we are the tool of Hashem's revenge in this case. I'm not waiting for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to do anything. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has put the strength in our hands, the force in our hands. He expects us to move. When Hashem comes to, to, to Kain in the Parsha, and he says to him, hey, where is your brother? And he says, anochi. So I, I wrote, I, I said this on Shabbos, you know, in my own community. I said, that's it. We're done answering like that. We're done, we're done answering in a in a ho- in a helpless way. Can I guard my brother? Yes. Yes, we can. You can guard your brother. You can guard your brother. You can guard your sister. We have the ability. If Hashem comes to us today and says, where are your brothers and sisters? We are accountable for every single one of them. And we will know where they are. We will know where they have been taken. We will know where they have been buried. We will know where they have been killed. And we are the tool for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to avenge their deaths and to be able to restore peace and prosperity to our land. And I want to say one last thing in conclusion. That is our goal. That is our goal. Our goal is not vengeance. Our goal is peace and prosperity and living a good life. That's all we want. That's all we've ever wanted. And I know that our enemies don't believe that. And I and I I see the, the foreign news channels and what they write about, what Israel wants and this and that. They don't have a clue what we want. They talk about the political and this and that. It's all good. Am Israel has never wanted anything other than to be left alone in peace and to live a good life. That's all we want. And if the road to that goes through war with Hamas, then it goes through war with Hamas. And if we need to, to, to live in Eretz Israel, we will live. And if we need to die, we will die in Eretz Israel. But we will do what we need to do to get to our good life, which is what we want eventually. Ravani Rosenzweig, I want to thank you so much. This has been very helpful for me personally, and I'm sure everybody listening also. This might not be a normal time for inspiration, but I'm certainly inspired and I'm comforted by everything you said, frankly. And I want to thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And maybe hear Bissarotovot. Good news. Subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. 
just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>